Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, and I get to serve as directing pastor here at St. John's United Methodist Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our desire is to be a beacon of faith and service, focusing our passions and gifts to reflect Christ's love to the world. You are invited to join us each week at 9 a.m. for a time of traditional worship or at 11 a.m. for contemporary worship. Thanks for joining us for this online version of the sermon. This morning's scripture is from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him, and nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought life to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. God said a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the very world he created. The world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the Word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. John testified about him when he shouted to the crowds, this is the one I was talking about when I said, Someone is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. From his abundance we have all received one gracious blessing after another, for the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Methodist roots in Illinois run way back to the early 1800s, and the spark started in this area, including some massive revival-style camp meetings that took place down an unpaved stretch of Mengstrasse in Edwardsville. The first Methodist meeting house in Illinois was located near a pond in what's now Lakewood Subdivision in Glen Carbon. It's ground zero for Illinois Methodism. This place had been compared to the biblical land of Goshen from scriptures since 1799, but that first meeting house took the name of Bethel, house of God, after the scripture location where God spoke to Jacob. Pastors Samuel Thompson and John Hogan were appointed to serve the Edwardsville Circuit in 1827, marking the chartering of a new Methodist congregation, first located in a schoolhouse where the Wiley Theater now stands. The church's first building was named Thompson Chapel after one of those first founding pastors, and then after outgrowing a couple of facilities, the 1854 church building was substantially remodeled in 1884 for a whopping $6,201, which is about $160,000 worth of spending power today. With that significant change came another. The church then became known as St. John's Methodist Episcopal Church, the name suggested by the reverend at the time, Reverend Robert Muneer. 
I poured over the history of the church, and it never says why exactly the name was changed. I know St. Louis has had some strong Catholic roots from its very inception, hence the name of the city, and so a number of even Protestant churches have gone and named themselves after saints. But Catholicism was not necessarily in vogue in the 1880s, and in fact there were some budding organizations in the larger St. Louis metropolitan area that espoused some fairly anti-Catholic sentiment to put it mildly. There was also in 1884 a presidential election where Grover Cleveland was elected to his first non-consecutive term as president, but one of the candidates was a man with Illinois roots named John St. John. He was a third-party candidate of the Prohibition Party, and the Methodist Church was pretty squarely in the temperance and prohibition camp at that point. Maybe the naming was a way to commemorate his part in that movement. I've also been to churches where I know that people who contributed significant sums of money for construction projects got to help guide the choice of a name for the finished product. I don't see evidence of that in St. John's history, but those types of stories are usually passed on through oral tradition rather than the recorded documentation. Regardless, this congregation got its name from a specific follower of Christ, and there must be something about this apostle that caused this congregation to adopt his name as our name. Maybe you don't know about a lot about this guy. Maybe you know quite a bit. Either way, we're going to take a look at the life of St. John and let his story inspire our stories. Here's how we think we know what we know about John. John had a student named Polycarp who had a student named Irenaeus, and they were all highly respected in the early church, in part because of their connection with John the Apostle. Through their writings, we could connect the gospel of John with the eyewitness and life of ministry. That John doesn't name himself in the gospel that takes his name, but the writer frequently refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved as a brother or loved as a friend. Jesus first calls John and his older brother James away from their father Zebedee's fishing business. Some believe John was first an adherent to the teaching and ministry of Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, which is why the gospel begins as it does, by describing the inherent authority of Jesus in universal terms and the authority of Jesus as it was revealed to John himself. So we're going to start off with this morning's lessons. The first one is, St. John's faith speaks to the wider world in familiar terms. St. John's faith speaks to the wider world in familiar terms. Verse 1, in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. If someone were to write a biography about you and start with the most interesting early detail about why your life is important, where would they begin? If someone had intimate knowledge of your life and they wanted to let the world know what you stand for and why your life mattered, what story would they tell to let the reader know that yours is a life that's worthy of their attention? It's a tough question. Do you begin with a unique birth story, the overcoming of childhood obstacles, a time when you received an accolade, the strange circumstances surrounding your story and how your life fit with them? How does someone begin to tell your life story? What if there were four different people trying to tell your story and each one is trying to make sense of your life to a group who may or may not already know who you are? Does that make a difference? Did you ever notice that each of the four Gospels telling the story of Jesus' life begins with a different appeal to Jesus' divine authority. 
If you look at Matthew, it begins with an appeal to Jesus' impressive lineage and pedigree and upon the circumstances of his holy birth. In Mark, it begins with the testimony of John the Baptist and the heavenly proclamation that came at the time of Jesus' baptism, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. If you take a look at Luke, it's the birth narrative of Jesus that we hear nearly every Christmas time. And in John, it's the appeal to the eternal nature of Jesus, who has been included in the nature of God forever and ever. See, scholars believe that John wrote his gospel last of the four that we find in our Bible. And because of the similarities that we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's believed that Excuse me. It's believed they were working somehow in collaboration with one another. Maybe they were looking off of one another's work and trying to offer clarification from what may have been missing in one person's experience and fill in the gaps by writing another perspective. But John's telling of the life of Jesus feels different from the very beginning. Partly because John lived long enough to hear people start making up stories about Jesus. And John felt like he was in a position to set the record straight. We'll see that throughout some of John's writing. He stood for what he knew to be true about his friend, his sibling through faith, and his Savior. And one of the things that John stood for was the eternal nature of Jesus. There was never a time when Jesus was not. Never a time when Jesus was not. And this was a message that John wanted to make clear to a group of people beyond those who were part of Israel by geography or by family line. That's a part of who we are as a congregation as well. Up until the past several months, there were maybe a handful of people in all of Christianity who might have predicted that our experience of worship would move to almost entirely online for a while. And really, who could have predicted that? But this congregation was able to make that move fairly quickly in the short term, and we're working to make that a more consistent offering in the long term, in part because there are people beyond our geographical or family boundaries who need to hear about the good news of Jesus, the eternal and faithful one in whom we can trust, and especially in uncertain times. How important and valuable is that message right now? How crucial that we have the opportunity to share it in a way that makes it accessible beyond the walls of a physical building. That's just one part of what we live into when we're following the inspiration of John. Because Jesus is the cause and purpose of creation, John knew that the message was for all people, even beyond the boundaries of his inherited faith. And so he felt called to present it in ways that would make connections with the hearers in what was called Asia Minor at the time, lands where we would now find modern-day Turkey or Syria. So he used terms that were shared by people of multiple philosophies to help them see the unique nature of Jesus Christ. And one of the key terms that we find very beginning of this passage is the word, word. That phrase, logos in the Greek, would have been understood by, in different ways by nearly anyone who had been impacted by Hellenism at the time. To the Greek-influenced audience, the logos would mean what we are created for, and it would mean the underlying purpose of existence. To the Hebrew audience, it would mean what you waited for or the fulfillment of God's promise. And whether it's the underlying purpose or the fulfilled promise, John was informing the reader that Jesus' roots in those divine roles go way, way back. And how far back do they go? That's our second lesson this morning. Jesus' place in history predates history. Jesus' place in history predates history. 
Verse 2, John goes on. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. Have you ever tried to explain something about your work to somebody using only jargon? My job is to optimize corporate synergy by strategically managing Six Sigma goals and streamlining robust and holistic best practices in order to leverage sustainable growth and institutionalize organic change management with a laser-focused customer empowerment experience. People's eyes begin to gloss over after a little bit. You could just tell people you're a sales manager, right? Now, John knew the messianic jargon. He could have said something like, well, the teleological purpose of the incarnation is the embodiment of the homoousios in order for the co-eternal person of the Trinity revealed to us temporally as Jesus of Nazareth to become the ultimate substitutionary atonement according to the standard of the sacrificial traditions of the Hebrew Judaic tribal religion, but with universal implication in order to introduce a non-works righteousness-based soteriology beyond geographic boundaries which invites lifelong sanctification and mystical union with Christ until the parousia. Simple, right? Now, John's community probably would have just tuned all that out. But maybe they'd care if they learned that the creation of the world and our existence on it was not just the story of some unknowable and distant mountaintop mythology that tends to already favor the already powerful, but the story of a God who cared so deeply about the lives and situation of his beloved creation, cares enough to visit and live among some of the least fortunate and forgotten. And in the hearing of the people of Asia Minor at John's time, the lands of Galilee, Judea, and Samaria, they were about as unfortunate as you could get given the number of times that the land had been conquered and occupied. But John seemed to indicate that the news he has to share is important beyond that region since he had a hand in crafting the entire created order. Okay, so there's a knowable God who gives shape and purpose to the cosmos as they know it. How does John know this? This is where the universal story becomes a personal story to John. Verse 6, he says, God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. The story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is inherently powerful. It's a story that has worth all on its own. Jesus doesn't need our faith in order for him to be who scriptures proclaim him to be. But there's something powerful that happens when our story intersects with this great narrative of redemption. John acknowledged the universal significance of Jesus, but this is where something shifts. It's like he's saying, yes, Jesus is important, period, can I tell you why he's important to me? There's some scholarly consensus that John, the Christ follower who wrote this book detailing the life of Jesus, was first a student of Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. In fact, later in this chapter, we read about how the following day, John, the baptizing John, was again standing with two of his disciples, and as Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, Look, there is the Lamb of God. And when John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. Jesus looked around and saw them following. What do you want? He asked them. They replied, Rabbi, meaning teacher, where are you staying? Come and see, Jesus said. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to the place where he was staying, and they remained with him for the rest of the day. 
One of those followers was Andrew, one of Jesus' first called apostles. The other, unnamed in this gospel, is thought to be John, this gospel's writer, basically by both association and by process of elimination. He begins by establishing that the whole world's story starts because of Jesus, and then he tells about how his journey with Jesus began. That's part of our inspiration as well. We get to tell the story of who Jesus is, but we also get to tell the story of who Jesus is to us. Why does it matter that Jesus created us? That's a question answered by the very nature of Jesus and also by the nature of our relationship with him. And that leads to our third lesson this morning, the incarnation, God's presence in human form is still central to the church today. The incarnation, God's presence in human form is still central to the church today. Verse 10, Jesus came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. For many of us, we've got circles of friendship. And the closer the circle, the more intimate the relationship. Except for the occasional social media oversharer, most of us keep our deepest and most personal experiences and information amongst those with whom we share the greatest trust. That's usually built because somebody has proven themselves worthy of trust consistently over time. We'll share kindness with acquaintances, we'll share time and resources with friends, but we'll share our hearts with our ride-or-die, time-tested, true, blue besties. They're the people who know what happened in Vegas They're the folks who, when the party heads would come and try and vet us if we were to be eligible for a major party nomination, they're the ones that they'd come to to make sure that we don't have any skeletons in our closet. They're the people who have seen you ugly cry. You may have even broken wind in front of them. They are your inner circle. Jesus had an inner circle. His apostles were all close. They got significant amounts of Jesus' time and teaching, but still, there were three people that Jesus invited even closer Peter, James, and John. The inner circle witnessed Jesus raise Jairus' daughter back from death. They saw Jesus transfigured and sharing real estate with the ancient prophets Moses and Elijah on a mountaintop. They would be invited to keep watch with Jesus in the garden on the evening leading up to his arrest and execution. John got to witness the power of God up close and personal because Jesus saw fit to make his glory known in personal ways. That intimate group saw the unbelievable time and time again. And because they spent so much time with Jesus, close to Jesus, their lives simply could not be the same. They were transformed by being so close to their teacher and their God. How could they be the same after what they saw? They couldn't. And when, like John, we spend time with Jesus... We're invited to see the powerful things, the nearby, intimate, closer than a brother God of creation can do. And if that's the case, then our lives will never be the same also. We'll be changed. We're children of God, given new life by the Spirit of God. We come to reflect Christ's unfailing love and faithfulness as we rely more and more upon his grace. And when we do, not only will we see God's glory, but our lives will become more transparent 
as Christ becomes more apparent in our lives. As the gospel writer's previous teacher, John the Baptist, declared, he must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. That's how Christ is still present in the world today, in our lives fully surrendered to God. When we approach this love feast, we get to approach the love feast as an act of intimacy and an act of surrender. And so, for this time, I invite you to have handy something to eat and something to drink, and we're just going to bookend this whole experience with just some thanks and some praise. We're going to start off with what's probably a familiar tune if you've been with us for a love feast before, and I invite you to please sing along with the lyrics that are on your screen. our table, Lord, be here and everywhere adored, your creatures bless and grant that we may feast in fellowship with thee, amen. Now we're going to spend a moment to confess our sin and to receive God's pardon. I invite you to join with me in the confession on your screen. Almighty and all-loving God, through your Son, Jesus Christ, you have reconciled the world to yourself. Help us to now be reconciled with one another so we can once again dwell in the warmth of your love. Inspire us with your Holy Spirit to put aside the covering of pride and put on Christ so we would forgive and be forgiven. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. As John wrote in a letter, in 1 John 1.9, we read, if we, are, if we confess our sins, the God who is faithful and just will forgive us of our sins and clean us from anything that is unrighteous. And so, because of what Jesus has done for us, we can know that our sins are forgiven. That's good news. Now, we're going to take a moment to just offer a bit of thanks to God. We can say something we're grateful for and then eat what we have to eat and drink what we have to drink. And just to offer up an example, I'm going to share what I'm grateful for. This week marks the beginning of my third year of service for St. John's United Methodist Church. I'm grateful that I get to serve with you as your pastor. Even through the strangest and most difficult times, I am grateful that God has drawn us together. And I am thankful in this place at this time, that we have the opportunity to worship as God has called us in our conscience and by his spirit to worship together. That's what I'm grateful for in your home. Whatever you're grateful for, go ahead and share that word of thanks and uh, give other people that you're with a chance to do that as well. On the other side of the music that we'll hear, we'll have a chance to close this time with thanks as well.
We're going to give thanks once again through song, and I invite you to just go ahead and sing along with the lyrics that are on your screen. Father of earth and heaven, your hungry children fed. Your grace now to our spirits given is true immortal bread. Let us and all our race in Jesus Christ to prove the sweetness of your saving grace, your satisfying love.